I just got to imagine, dude, just slowly like pulling at it, man. Like Play-Doh, just (laughs) over the teeth. Oh, it's so grody. Welcome. You're listening to Paleo Cheese Podcast, episode one. Wild at heart and weird on top. Welcome, everybody. To the very first episode of the Paleo Cheese Podcast, wherein we toss a film under the chaise lounge to discuss it, to psychoanalyze, and to sometimes even point and laugh. I'm your host, Jeremiah Bannister. And I'm your other host, Chad Lutsky. Ah, dude, this is going to be a lot of fun, man. It is. This is going to be tons of fun doing this because we haven't done anything in like forever in a Chinese New Year. And them buggers only come around like two or three times a year. In film, dude. I mean, we, we both get excited about movies and uh, we've, you know, done some movie reviews in the past that were more like, uh, I wouldn't call it sketch comedy, but uh, definitely uh, unique. Yeah. But dude, hey, first of all, I got to say this, man, before we go any further, that intro, dude, I'm really glad you picked that. Glad you brought that up because that intro is uh, a clip from uh, a song called Down and Out by the band, the Seattle hardcore splatter rock band, uh, The Accused. And it was immediately my first choice was to ask those guys if we could use that rather than hunt down some royalty free thing, which there's a lot of great music out there for that kind of thing. Um, Maybe even arguably more, uh, you know, like rap. Well, (laughs) like like some rap i mean yeah i know you're reaching for it man i know in the back of your mind yeah okay (laughs) more applicable or or but for me um i i have been a huge fan of those guys since i was 17 but I, i over the years over the last like 20 years i've gotten to know a couple of members um great guys uh tommy niemeyer and blaine cook I don't know Tommy as much, but uh, I know Blaine, the singer, um, and he's both guys have always treated me really well, um, sending me stuff, uh, records, T-shirts, whatever. And I've always uh, done everything I could to um, fly the flag for them. And so I just wanted to thank them for use of the song. Uh, it means a lot. And so if you have not heard of The Accused... Uh, go check them out. Yeah, we got to put the link to the song. Yeah, in the show notes. And we got we, we to gotta put together some cool show notes for these people, man. Because this is going to get deep. And speaking of deep, I mean, look. We, we're, we're really the kind of guys that really get into what we're doing. And we prepare ourselves, man. I, I know, speaking for myself, I went through this extreme regimen of changing my diet I started sleeping about <laughs> two hours a day, <laughs> getting <laughs> ready for method viewing, huh? <laughs> getting ready for this show. I was like the Buddha, you know, I'm sitting there out, out in the wilderness and everything, or like the Iceman getting under freezing cold water for, uh, you know, a long time doing Wim Hof stuff. But no, reading and watching videos and kind of just preparing and everything. And I know that I did, but did you, did you do any kind of reading or viewing yeah. and preparing yourself for this money? Dude, I'm always reading. I'm always watching. Well, what did peeking, you read? Peeking through them windows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> yeah. 
That's how I roll. <laughs> so what like what books were you reading in preparation for this in the build-up, man? What were you what were you focusing on? It wasn't anything I was reading in preparation. Um, after I burned sage every night for the last week. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I did just read a really good book by actually a couple friends of mine, Matt Hayward and Robert Ford. They wrote this uh, wonderful, highly entertaining book called A Penny for Your Thoughts, published by uh, Poltergeist Press. Excellent book. I don't want to really go into, you know, long synopsis or anything. Fans of, uh, I think Joe Lansdale would probably really dig the book. Uh, it's great. They're, they've got a, a, a sequel to the book coming out soon. I'm not sure when. Um, might even be out by the time we get this podcast out. I'm not really sure. A Penny for Your Thoughts by Matt Hayward, Matt Hayward and Robert Ford. Good guys. Excellent book. Yeah, I've been reading too, man. I've been reading... Uh a couple different things and i'm like you man i'm reading all the time and if i'm not reading i'm either writing or i'm doing some kind of video or i'm watching a movie or something like that and uh whether something for myself something for this show or something even with my children but uh i bought this i bought a couple books recently one of them is a, a real popular one by joseph campbell it's called the hero with a thousand faces and it's this kind of it's a comparative mythology book Okay. And he outlines what he calls the hero's journey. This is from the cover. It's this universal motif of adventure and transformation that runs through virtually all of the world's mythic traditions. Uh, it's extremely good. And I'm probably about three quarters of the way right now through that book. And then I got one I'm trying to remember, man, when I got this, I think I, I may have actually got this for Christmas. And then I just kind of didn't read it for a while. And so I just recently finished one called Being a Writer, Advice, Musings, Essays, and Experiences from the World's Greatest Authors. It's by uh, Travis Elboro and Helen Gordon. And it's just it's a fantastic book. It's kind of got this nice. cool cover. It's one of these books you get over at Costco or whatever. And uh, extremely good. And it's got all of these really cool kind of... Um, insights into into how to be get into writing the mindset what do you do with writer's block there are some that just don't even believe in that <laughs> they say i don't believe in writer's block no such thing uh different ideas regarding your day how do you structure your day as a writer should you wake up early or are you going to be you know like dostoevsky uh and lovecraft that write at night right there's only a couple mm -hmm. that that i think leo tolstoy there's a, a quote from him that talks about people and authors that write at night and the kind of person that that happens mm -hmm. to be. And so super, super cool book. So I've been, I, I, I just finished that and I'm almost done with uh, hero of a thousand faces, but those are the books, man, that I've been reading. So, but you mentioned movies though. Well, yeah. Hang on. I want to say something about your book. Um, yeah. I, I, well, a couple of things, actually, I actually do. I'm, I'm from the camp that I, I think that, writer's block is a farce i do I, I don't necessarily believe in it i know that you have tougher days than others but <clears throat> my understanding of writer's block um at least my definition of it has a lot to do with not necessarily uh not wanting to write or not wanting to put your butt in a chair and get going but more to do with lack of ideas maybe and if you're a writer um i just uh, in, in most talk writers that I talk to, uh, 
I have more ideas than I'll ever be able to use in a lifetime. There's just no way I'll get them all done. And, and I'm constantly, I've got a file on my computer. I'm constantly writing them down. But the other thing, I, I, I'm a firm believer of, of never really having too many books on writing because while some are better than others, I think you can, it's one of those things where you can like pick the meat and leave the bones. Like some, sometimes you'll read a book that's like, you must do this. You must start at a certain time of the day and you, uh, you must do this many words and you must outline and you do the, you know, and that's, that's just not, and then you, you find a lot of books that say the opposite, you know, this works for this person, this works for that person. Joan Lansdale, who I was talking about earlier, uh, he, he does not believe in that structure at all. Mm-hmm. And which feels good. It is encouraging uh, because he's very successful, excellent writer. And, um, and to know that somebody is doesn't have a strict regimen that they're following, <clears throat> they don't have strict rules that they're following, and they're they're making it happen. So I, I prefer the books that are like here's ideas that that may or may not work for you. But yeah. I also wanted to ask if you've ever if you've ever read Stephen King's on writing. I know you're not. That's that's quoted in this. I, numerous, I don't numerous times. I don't oh, yeah. Numerous, it. numerous times. And I was going to say, that's actually one of the strengths of this book is that it doesn't it doesn't have a unified plan. In fact, mm-hmm. there's wildly opposing views, right, mm-hmm. of what of what writing is, of how to do it. Right. And the more structured it gets. I, I've come to find, you know, and maybe, you know, so I, I'm assuming there are certain authors that will listen to this and go, I disagree with these guys. But the, some of the authors that they mention um, that have these very strict regiments and everything, I, I, I didn't like that nearly as much. And I, I thought about it and said, I'm not even sure I like that. Right. They're writing as much as the other ones. Yeah. You know, they've got these really strict things, but it's also it can be paralyzing to people. It can be debilitating where you get so caught up in the method of it. And and I've done it myself. I'm writing a book. I'm writing a novel. It's a mm-hmm. daunting task. It's the first book I've ever published, and it's a novel. <laughs> it's a big one, and it's very personal too. Okay, it's it's based on a true story. But the thing is, is that you know I, I've gone through so many notes about the symbols that that I use and about the meaning of things, and I go through all of this and I write it out and I map it out and I put the names in and all this, and I realize, man, if I would have spent that time just writing it. I would have been done. <laughs> yeah, I just I would have been finished, and it, and it it would have been I feel in a way maybe more natural that and and not so even in my own mind forced, you know, yeah. uh, uh, forcing this and and so I'm with you on that, and I'm and that's one of the th- the things I think is the strength about that particular book. Yeah, and yeah. you know the the thing about Stephen King's on writing, and to me it's a shame. I think that the people who don't read horror or want to write horror i think there are there are some people who tend to kind of you know look away from that book as as a reference book which is a shame because i i've read the book i plan on reading i wanted to read it like once every other year because it's so i mean it's great but um it's not a book for horror writers it's just a book for writers period you know it doesn't go into you know, how to be scary. And, you know, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, plus Stephen King's written plenty of non-horror, you know, The Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption, Eyes of the Dragon, uh, all kinds of, you know, short stories and whatnot. But 
Yeah, I just I wanted you to encourage you. I I bought my my sister writes mainly poetry, but I wanted to uh, I I we had talked about the book. I ended up giving a copy for her to her whatever for Christmas, and I don't yeah. know if she's read it yet. But I dude, it's it's one of the best, and I've seen it on non horror list for like best books on writing. So. I'm kind of pumped to read your sister's poetry, and I don't want to get too too off in the woods on this. But seriously, man, like yeah, just, I, that's one of the things I'm doing is I'm assembling my poems and essays and my prose, my speculative fiction that I've written over the years. It's been published in a couple collegiate literary journals. I actually won the Olivet College. I got I got the top honors for the school for writing for that, but nice. I've never published it on my own. I thought, man, I need mm-hmm. I need to polish them buggers up. And, and put them out there. I'll, be, I'll make a million dollars. I mean, I'll obviously be super rich. I, <laughs> just just like this. I'll be like, look, I wrote a book on poetry and bada boom, bada bing. All of a sudden. It, that's just, how it happens, man. That's you, how it you, happens. Uh, you write a limerick and you're swimming <laughs> in, uh, in an indoor pool. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, so you were asking about movies. Yeah. And or TV series. Uh, I did have a couple series that I uh, want to talk about or mention. For a second, one of them I, I had avoided for a while. I had a kind of a silly name, and I I I didn't have high expectations for it at all. And I figured I I'll try it, and I did. It's on Netflix. It's called Slasher. It's much more intelligent than I thought it was going to be. I watched the first season, and each season deals with a, a different storyline. Just which is something that's common among shows lately, like. With, uh, say, Mindhunter or True Detective and um, what's another one? American Horror Story would probably be the, the most popular one. And this does that same thing. And it is a slasher, but they're intelligent slashers, kind of like uh, whodunits, too. Uh, they're definitely graphic. So they will uh, they will appease the, the audience that needs that viscera um, in their in their horror it's much more intelligent than something like uh, not, not to put down Halloween or Friday the 13th. Cause I love them both, but it's much more intelligent than that. Um, it's for a bigger audience. Um, I don't know if you'd like it. You might, the the wife liked it, but she complained about the acting, which yeah. I really didn't have any problems with, but <laughs> it's kind of interesting that it's called slasher and yet it's not, it, it's a, it's a smarter, what do they call those man? Psychological, thriller well, late, type things or yeah well lately there's a whole new sub uh sub genre i don't know if you call it sub genre but a new term it's kind of like a a pretentious elitist term called uh elevated horror movies like um the babadook and hereditary midsummer where it it, it kind of like a thinking man's horror uh, you know something more cerebral <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 yeah, there, there's a backstory here. Yeah, so inside baseball, the you know the the thing about the elevated horror, you know that's that's probably, and I mean it's elitist, so it makes sense that I'd be into that. I'm kind of a an aristocrat. I've I've always kind of believed that work was made so that other people had something to do while I was enjoying myself. You know, but mm-hmm. the the idea of having uh this this elevated or enlightened even sense of horror that's kind of probably what i'm what i'm really into and and it, it may be why you know i haven't seen hereditary but i've i've seen midsummer 
And I, I want to reserve any comments about Midsummer because I'm really hoping that we talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those movies that I, I think that would be really good for us to talk about. So I don't want to say too much about it right now, but it's a movie that I enjoyed for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> it's a movie that the genre itself is is would be one that I would ordinarily totally enjoy. And I'll leave it at that. To mention elevated horror, just just one more thing. My my theory on the, the on the term is it's sad that we have to have that because my interpretation of elevated horror just means here we have an actual original film again in this day and age when uh, you know, the, the, the Hollywood is constipated with um, Marvel and DC films and uh, you know, fantasy uh, Lord of the Rings, Star Star Trek and star Wars and all this kind of stuff. And if not those, then remakes or sequels. So there's not a lot of originality being pumped out in through hollywood so when something truly original like hereditary comes about or maybe the baba duke or whatever and and it's deemed elevated horror because i i the masses i i mean if you look at movies like from the 70s things like the exorcist or rosemary's baby or uh i mean there's just a t- uh, the brood um, there's just a ton of stuff that was just truly, absolutely original. Nothing had been done like that yet. And I guess if you were to go back to the seventies with this elevated horror term, you could even deem that elevated horror. But I think it's just a, a term that needs to be used now because someone managed to get their film into the masses and still keep their artistic integrity and be original about it. I think it's sad that we have to use that term. What about you, man? Are you watching anything or dude? Oh yes. Oh yes, man. You know, and I, I'm like you, I watched a lot of stuff. I've got, I've got the, the TV on and it's been kind of difficult a little bit. I got to say this, man, cause I got my, my fraternity brothers. They might be watching, um, my, my spiritual fraternity brothers and they, I'm part of this thing called Exodus, Exodus 90. And the idea is to kind of take control of your life. Uh, their ascetical practices, these ideas of, about food and about even cold showers and stuff. And you're not supposed to watch unless it has stuff to do with uh, your work. And so this is a fortunate thing, actually, in a way, <laughs> and is because I'm like, well, look, I'm doing a show about this. And so I'm watching a lot of things, actually, and taking notes, though. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm taking notes, I'm going and I'm reading reviews from other people. But uh, once a week, I'm able to uh, break the rule. Okay. And you p- pick a rule that you're able to break. And so I did. <laughs> And I picked screen time where I'm able to watch with my kids mm-hmm. uh, because that's something we normally do. And we've kind of been at home here for a minute. And so the kids are constantly wanting to do this and it makes it a little difficult. But I've been we went back old school, man. And we've been watching Super Friends from like 1978. Wow. You know, wow. I think they may have actually been around even before 1978, but it, watching Super Friends, uh, which is hilarious, but also Ren and Stimpy. And it's 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 pretty cool, man, because I went and I, I looked up John Kay, right, the creator of Ren and Stimpy after all this. And I was I was kind of thinking about it and the impact that Ren and Stimpy had on cartoons mm-hmm. and the absurdism, right? The the craziness of the whole thing. They, of, I, I, they could arguably be responsible for this uh, explosion of adult cartoons even. I maybe I I think that cartoons it could be argued that even Looney Tunes was a very adult thing like there were adult themes or maybe it was just that 
younger people were more adult like <laughs> you know when it first came around you know i mean they they're already taking care of the farm at age seven you know <laughs> it's like you know i need to speak to the farm you know the, the farmer here oh my boy <laughs> you know so i don't know maybe you know the nurses in in the whole place are 12 and so mm -hmm. it was one of those things and uh but but the I think you're onto something with the idea that a, a popular culture show, you know, um, you have, of course, the Simpsons. Um, and I, 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 the Simpsons came around before. Ren yeah. That would, yeah. Yeah. So the yeah, Simpsons right. would be, the, and the Simpsons had, had elements of absurdity too, but, I, but not to the level of Ren and Stimpy. I mean, Ren and Stimpy is taking it to a whole different place. And, yep. um, maybe even a little surreal, right? It's For true sure. as a cartoon. And you begin to see from there, if I, if my timeline's correct, you begin to see after that stuff on MTV, stuff like the max. And I forget the one with the huge head. A dude that he had this massive brain or uh, massive skull. Um, you know, it was that it was these weird cartoons and of course, Beavis and butthead. Mm -hmm. And so, but, but Ren and Stimpy, if you look at a lot, and I, I would say even SpongeBob has a lot of has been influenced, and in part because there are some people who've worked with SpongeBob who also did stuff with Ren and Stimpy. Mm -hmm. But John Kay, the influence of John Kay has been dramatic. And I, I went on because I've always I've always admired it, right? At least his early stuff. I didn't like it when they came back. I, I felt that it was too adult, you know, oh, dude, and, yeah, and perverted. Sure. You know, I I I didn't like that. Um, yeah. but the early stuff. And so, you know, I went and I looked up John Kay and he's got this website, man. And he and he 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 posts pretty regularly. Um, I don't think there's a comment section, but you can people can find him on Instagram, I guess. But he's got he posts his uh, drawings. He's drawing pictures all the time, kind of lets you in on like what he's doing, the drafts that he's done of different people. But he's just sketching all the time. And mm -hmm. so it was kind of a cool thing to, to go back and to rewatch these these cartoons that had a big influence on me in in my life and my understanding of of media in this way and i don't know it's pretty awesome man so i was, I was pretty pumped up about that so that ren and stimpy cool. and super friends man yeah i yeah i didn't have such a good time with super friends i mean it was just one of those things i'd watch once in a while and could never figure out why uh the wonder twin twins couldn't uh like the one couldn't do anything that wasn't water related in some way <laughs> that's actually a really tragic thing in this home and i gotta say this man part of it and it's you know i don't want to mention too much about the idea of the book i'm writing but this is part of it is that the super friends play a role in that because we have had a family tradition called pillow blankets where the family gets together and mm -hmm. we lay out as many pillows and as many blankets as we can and we watch tv you know, we'll, we'll turn on something and we'll watch it. But it had to be something that was kind of uplifting or or yeah. innocent in its humor. You know, nothing scary, anything like that. So we sure. it started with Super Friends. And that's how it all began with my eldest daughter, Samantha. And she, right. she she loved it. And it just took hold. And it, we for a long time, uh, we we kind of fell away from it after my daughter died. We kind of fell away Mm -hmm. from from watching super friends and it wasn't until i think like a month and a half ago that one of my kids saw that super friends was on uh amazon prime and it, they were like we really want to watch this and they all agreed they all just really wanted to watch it but man they really dislike the wonder twins a lot <laughs> they're like what are these They're about trading 
they liked the first ones because you had Wonder Dog, you know, and you had the brother and sister. I forget their name, but you had this brother and sister, and I don't even know if they really had powers. They're kind of goofy. Melvin, I think, was one of their name, one of the names, and they had Wonder Dog. And then after that season is just over. And then it, it the next season it was the Super Friends Hour or whatever Super Hour Wonder Hour, and it was it was the Wonder Twins and their Wonder Twins Power Unite kind of thing, and it was yeah Water the 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 boy is sitting there and he's like I'm gonna be an iceberg and I'm thinking why you know do you really if you can be anything made out of ice why wouldn't you be like an ice tank, why water or mist? Like what's up with that? Pick something yeah. that is awesome. And instead it's just not an, I want to be a bucket. <laughs> really? And so, yeah. but yeah. So yeah, the other, one, friends, the other friends, one had to be, the other one had to be uh animal, right? So if he was a yeah. bucket of water, the other one would have to be an Eagle so that they could be dumped on whoever. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One has to be an animal and one of them has to be a, uh something related to water and so yeah. just just weird man just weird stuff and so we don't we don't necessarily care for those but they kind of they don't play as big of a role later and they kind of i think they fade out man but we'll see we'll see as it goes along because we're, we're i think we're into season three right now and but that's what i've been watching man so i've been watching super friends and ren and stimpy and getting pumped up for this show brother I, I do I do have one other show that I've been watching that I had never heard of until I was hunting around on Amazon Prime, and <clears throat> it was a uh, uh, it's a series called Thriller, and it was created in the UK, uh, I think through seventy three to seventy six, and I'm really surprised at how awesome each episode is. Each episode is either like a supernatural thriller or a whodunit, or um, some kind of spooky murderous element to it and there, there's weird the length of it is weird too um and i don't know if that's a uk thing or a 70s thing but like each episode is like 63 minutes or something like weird uh weird timing but um it's a great show man it's it's really 63 good. minutes yeah like 63 <laughs> minutes will be one episode and maybe 66 minutes for another one <laughs> yeah, they had to squeeze that extra three minutes but they are the stories are you'd think that watching like something like this um you would think that being you know after so many years of being on the planet and reading uh you know horror comics and 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 watching tales from the crypt and twilight zone and night gallery and stuff that that all of that would be kind of be old hat and predictable um and the storylines would just be kind of cliche but these really aren't they uh, they were kind of ahead of their time um so i would recommend that for anybody who's into that kind of like uh, a tv show that's 63 minutes long <laughs> 63 minutes that cracks me up man well that that's it for me man i uh you know if uh, that's all you got i mean we can get straight to the the main meat of the the podcast yeah let's talk about it man let's do it let's do this this uh wild at heart mm-hmm. david lynch man. Yeah. yeah i'd never seen it before in fact to be brutally honest I, i'm gonna i'm putting the cards on the table man is that i i don't even recall being aware of the movie i was unfamiliar with that kind of mm-hmm. like i'm unfamiliar with many van halen songs i just i'm like 
it's from a it's from a time period of life <laughs> i just don't i don't know if that's good or bad you know but if i really missed out on too much but the thing is is that this movie i did miss out on something i think that this was an interesting movie and i'm really glad because we were talking man about what we wanted to do and how we wanted to begin this and this seems like a good decision in hindsight in fact mm -hmm. In hindsight, that it was a good decision because for for a lot of different reasons that that we're going to get into. Yeah, I saw the movie 1990. I guess is when it came out. I saw it. Uh, I believe the year that it came out, and I think I may have seen it ten years later again. I can't remember, but it had been a really long time since I I, I saw it. So there was a lot that I didn't remember. All I knew was that it was first or second in my in my favorite David Lynch films because it really had an impact on me and even even though i hadn't seen it in so long i it's films like that that i really drew a lot of inspiration from in some of my writing like skullface boy so it was great to revisit it again and i had recently bought the blu-ray i'd been wanting that for a long time and i finally just sprung for it and so i thought personally that it would be a good one a good first one to kind of set the tone that we are going to be some of the stuff we're going to be digging. I mean, not super deep, not like super underground cult, although we were, we will touch that, yeah. but that's not what wild at heart is. I mean, it does have a cult following. It's not so deep that it's, uh, you know, for the snobby elitist, but uh, it's, but it is kind of deep even for a Lynch film, because when you think of Lynch, you think of Blue Velvet, you think of Eraserhead and Twin Peaks. Not normally Wild at Heart, and it's a shame. And uh, it's my favorite. I'm not a big Nicolas Cage fan. I, I think that he's great at a certain type of role. Same with Keanu Reeves. Um, and, and they're perfect at a certain something. And sometimes I have a hard time digesting a movie that they're in if they're trying to do something that's outside of that. And uh, I mean, God bless them for trying, but sometimes it, personally, it's hard for me to, uh, to take seriously, not to say that Nicholas Cage has, has not done any good. You know, what was it leaving Las Vegas? He was really good. In, and he's been good in, in other stuff too. But I felt like this role was like, he was able to be that crazy wild Nicholas Cage that we're all familiar with that he tries to be in other films. Well, he could be that and more in and he was charming yeah i felt in fact almost adorable at times you know and i i mean that i, I felt like and it, i gotta say this too is that this was the first thing with lynch that i had ever seen mm -hmm. i've never I, and, and so this is really kind of my virginity moment on this because i I'd, I'd never seen in fact i and this is gonna <laughs> people can mock me all they want but i've never seen twin peaks Right. Yeah. Never saw it. You're missing out. I'm telling you, I believe it now. I believe that I am. And it was mind blowing. And I, I want to I wanted to say something here. And I'm hoping that I'm hoping that I'm able to get this uh, on the camera, because here's the thing about, I don't know, man, three weeks ago. Well, no, I guess it was a little bit more than that, because uh, it was before the whole stay at home thing, right? So we're kind of, in, we're kind of in the thick of it. We're not going to talk about that. Okay. That's a, the world out there. Okay. This is us. But, yeah. but before all that happened, okay. Uh, just to give you a sense of place in all this, before that happened, 
I went to a coffee shop and one of the coffee shops here in town, it's called the bitter end. And they have one of those, uh, the book trades, you know, you can leave a book and take a book type of mm -hmm. thing. And so I go in there and every time I check it out, maybe once, you know, as a Kerouac book and I've, I've got some other things, but check this out, man. Look at this. Look at that. That was, that was in there. Really? Yes. Lynch on Lynch, bro. Yeah. Edited by Chris Radley. That's yeah. great. It was fantastic. And so, so when you said this and I really didn't know anything about it, but I, I, I saw this in the back, you know, it says, uh, uh, David Lynch erupted onto the cinema landscape with Eraserhead, establishing himself as one of the most original, imaginative, and truly personal directors at work in contemporary cinema. I didn't know when I would read it because I have, I have a respectable library. I've got, you know, hundreds mm -hmm. of books. So I, I didn't know if or when I would read this, but it sounded really cool. And it sounded like something that I would enjoy reading if or when I ever got around to it. And so when the idea came up, hey, Let's watch this movie, okay? Wild at heart, no clue. You, you said Nicholas Cage, I'm like, ah, you know, I don't really know, you know, about that. But then you said David Lynch, and I'm like, hmm. I'm like, wait a second, I've got something. <laughs> and so it, 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 it's, it's almost providential, man. It's one of those uh, union things, those meaningful accidents that take place in life. That that I think that this is kind of, and, and there's meaningful accidents in this movie, you know, that that mm -hmm. kind of have a uh, there's kind of a symbolic meaning behind that. That's, that's something that happened on the outside in life. That's also happening internally that together when brought together, will kind of show a direction for things. And so I thought it was really cool that, that this is the movie that we decided to do first. Yeah. There's, there's a, uh, there's also very brutal accidents in there, like blowing your own head off with a shotgun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An accident. Yes. Okay. Is so it? let's get into um, like, Initially, let's just talk about the first. Well, for those who don't know, aren't familiar with the the Wild at Heart, it is a kind of a tragic romance, sort of. Um, it's definitely a, a, a romance. It has some darker bits, definitely surrealism, and uh, like we mentioned, it's it's uh it's the screenplay is written by David Lynch and he directed it, but it was written it it the the writer of the actual book is Barry Gifford. He said that it was. What did he say? That it was uh. Finding love in hell is, is how he described it. He said it's a love story that goes through a strange highway in the modern and twisted world. And for him, for Lynch anyway, mm -hmm. it's just a compilation of ideas that comes along. The darker ones and the light ones, the humorous ones, all working together. Okay. I think it's a good description for it. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. So the first, first 10 minutes when you're sitting down and you just started this film, you really don't know anything about it. You've never seen Lynch before. You are being deflowered. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What 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 were your thoughts on the the first initial ten minutes? Well, in fact, the very beginning, yeah. and I you know it, I felt I'd like to know what building that was. Mm -hmm. You know, I I didn't I didn't look that up. I didn't have time ahead of time. But I loved the I loved the painting. You have these kind of looming ceilings way overhead. It's a beautiful beautiful building, and they're they're coming through the entrance and they're they're walking down steps. Okay, which I think that's pretty symbolic too that they're going down. It's a it's a descent. And they're looking up at the at the overhead, and and I wanted to see the paintings in this in the in the ceiling because I almost wondered if it's kind of angels in the architecture type thing, and that that also is is meaningful to this. But as soon as he walks in, a loving couple, they seem happy, 
you know, kind of go lucky a little bit, a little bit white trash. Not going to lie. Kind of the way he's dressed and stuff. <laughs> it looks a little white trash, but stylish, almost dapper. I felt like he drew from Elvis playing that character. There was oh, like, totally. The, the oh, way, totally. You know, his swagger and his, uh, his kind of like uh, draw or whatever. And uh, yeah, just his demeanor. It just reminded me of like kind of like this uh, rebellious <clears throat> uh, young Elvis, I guess. You know, he's a stylish, white, trashy guy. Yeah. Um, and so, and she, she's adorable, beautiful. And right away, and we're talking the first minute and a half, there's a, a major time altercation that involves Nicolas Cage just throwing the guy against the wall and he's bashing his head and there's blood going everywhere. And people are, they're gasping, but nobody's trying to stop it. And then he gets up and he takes a breath. And he puts a cigarette in his mouth and lights it and real slowly points his finger up at this woman in this in, in the, balcony overhead and there's a bunch of rich people up there and he points up and now he's at the bottom of the stairs now so i mean he's descent the descent is all the way to the bottom and he points up to the balcony at this very rich lady and she's there's this really tense moment where you it's quite obvious there's something going on mm -hmm. between these well there you go that's the intro to the film welcome to wild at heart it's, it sets the tone for the rest of the movie that you're you're not safe and then at any given moment, something, uh, you know, wild is going to happen, I guess. I think it kind of gives an idea for him, too, the main character. His name's Sailor. It's quite obvious that he's troubled. <laughs> it's quite obvious that there's something. I mean, his reaction is one thing to to be against somebody. I mean, if somebody comes up and says, I'm going to kill the girl or I'm going to kill you. You're obviously going to defend yourself. You're going to do this. But he it was about honor, I feel, for him. Mm hmm. And I feel like he had that kind of Southern sensibility in a way uh, that, you know, almost like the dual mentality that you've offended my honor, you know, or you've threatened me and I'm going to not just hurt you or stop you or prevent this from happening, but your brains are going to be on the ground. Yeah. And so that's kind of where, where he was with this, but it really kind of gives him a, a sense too that he's not so much about preserving himself as much as he is for defending the dignity of his girl. And in fact, that comes to play a number of times, including in a crazy scene where they're at a concert. And the Elvis comes out there too. Yeah, oh, for sure. Well, he sings yeah, by singing the Elvis song. Yes. But, but yeah, even at the beginning, he's well aware of the outcome mm -hmm. because when the guy confronts him, says why he's there and what he's going to do, uh sailor immediately he just says uh-oh and he's saying that to himself like mm -hmm. and he says it twice like it's gonna hit the fan you don't even know dude i'm going to lose it here in a second mm -hmm. and uh he does oh he totally loses it yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah but you know when they show when they when they are, are, are showing the camera at the very beginning and you see the ceiling and you hear the music Sometimes films are, are hard for me to get into because I real I know that I could have maybe 20 minutes to a half hour of not being that attached to a film because I have to, there's got to be some character development, maybe some backstory and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes I'm not really in the mood for, to hear all of that, but that like little boring, sweet music with the ceiling and stuff lasts about 45 seconds. And yeah. then the movie, uh, yeah, immediately begins. And so from that point through the rest of it uh, was just such a great ride. And and it sets the tone that it's it's going to be over the top, outlandish, to the point of being absurd even. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that nobody 
was running to stop it, that nobody there were there were gasps, but there were it's like spectators, like they were just very calm. The, the wealthy people up on the balcony as they're looking down, it wasn't just the worst dread in the world. But what you're seeing, if people saw that, I mean, it would just be it would be traumatizing. Yeah, what happened to actually witness that? And and it's got the opposites, you know, where on the one hand the very dignified, and yet on the other hand, you know, this idea of of duplicity and you know, paying people to murder people like right out of the gate. So it's, it's set in this thing that's supposed to be beautiful and grand and all of this, you know, the angel and the architecture type thing. Uh, and yet right away you have a descent right away. You have the conflicting opposites of the, the music that's soft and, and kind of this classical sound to it, plunging head deep into neck, deep into metal, right, right. Right out of the game. It's it's just squealing metal, right? I mean, really mm-hmm. intense. And and this place where you go from being kind of a dignified guy wearing your wearing your suit and stuff to a guy covered in blood, yeah. you know, and then going from the extreme of just murdering a guy to standing up and very calmly lighting a cigarette to then very intensely pointing a finger. And so you have those real rapid cycling of emotions and opposites that was to me as a as a a newcomer to Lynch stuff. This was, it blew my mind. I was like, I'm in, I'm here for the ride. So uh, as a whole, the movie as a whole, as far as like, which is something that bothers me uh, in any book or, or a movie. I mean, was there at any point other than just being like, yeah, the guy's probably going to get the girl and keep her at the, you know, at the end, I mean, he had her, but keep her. Was there any, did you ever, you know, what was, what's your opinion on just like the, the movie as far as like being predictable. predictability dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll put it this way. I, I disagreed with cinephilia beyond the person who was writing over there said that between senseless shouting matches and sex scenes, which by the way, as a disclaimer, there are in fact, a a kind of copious amount of Mm. sex scenes in it. But I think that there, we can talk about that later, but the criticism is that there was this sense of aimlessness in character development and momentum. And there were these repetitions and flashback structure that made it feel repetitive and tired. I disagree with that. Yeah. I disagree with that. I, I feel that on the one hand, it was pretty unpredictable because you have such weird characters, mm-hmm. but yet I felt that the characters, um, they were consistent throughout the whole thing. There wasn't an inconsistent character. You don't have sailor or Lula all of a sudden acting differently right? Lula being the girlfriend played by Laura Dern. Okay. You don't have her go from being a maiden type, which she was to a warrior type. You have her go from a maiden to a mother. You have him go from a hero to a hero that has at at the end realized the journey. The mother Lula's mother is played by Diane Ladd, which happens to actually be Laura Dern's actual mom. Yep. And she's, but she goes from being the protective mother to being kind of a trickster. Well, that works together. So I didn't feel that there was any in, in regards to character development and in regards to character predictability and, and kind of the decisions that they would make in certain situations. I felt that it was, it was coherent, um, predictable, but not, not boilerplate. It also featured, I guess the plot, right? The sequence Mm -hmm. of events in this story did have some things in it that were way out of the blue that if there is a criticism leveled against it, 
I would say that that may be one of the stronger ones is that there are some things in there that came and, and went and there was never explanation for them. And so there's, there's kind of random elements that at times, and even the stuff that some people like, I, I, I get what you're saying, but for me, it was just part of the, like the Lynchian experience. Like you're going to, I mean, there were so many random uh, parts in there that made it a David Lynch film. But it, it, it could have, you know, it could have also presented as being, you know, the, the stuff like that is random anyway. Accidents, driving by, enjoying life, and then all of a sudden you see, the, I mean, it's not something, thankfully, that happens often to people, but it does happen. Anytime there's an accident, somebody's going to stumble upon it. I mean, granted, this one was a little bit different. There was nobody else around, and they were basically, you know, the, the first people to see what was happening. But the randomness took it to this really disturbing level because it really came out of nowhere, you know, driving at night and seeing clothes on the road and then wondering where they came from and then running across this. But as far as like predict predictability, I almost feel like because of the characters and how quirky they were, the, the predictable meters almost shouldn't even be really in the equation because even if it was predictable, it's so not because of yeah. those characters you know the the mother she wasn't just a psychopath who who you could tell she was a psychopath because of her actions by going off after uh you know sailor and wanting him dead and wanting her daughter back she was doing insane stuff you know uh covering her entire face and hands with lipstick you know that that kind of which brought this like surreal creepiness to uh to something rather than just um you know and that's just another thing that you know it's it's a lynchian thing the best explanation that i've heard other than that it's just a lynchian thing and for somebody if they if they've only seen this right that would be substantiated by seeing other movies which i which i plan to do okay at this point i'm i'm willing to even go down the road of of like hey man twin peaks here i come but um synchronicity Right, this Jungian idea that uh, there's a meaningful relationship through symbolic meaning, this uh, idea of a meaningful coincidence. I mentioned that earlier. That's similar to what happened here, that um, you had the, the situation where they seem so happy, so satisfied. They're together. They're in this uh, bar and they're talking and he's, he's boasting about his, his experiences and with women kind of thing. And she's like, man, you're really a naughty guy. And you know, and she's really into this, like she's excited by that. And she just mm -hmm. is so happy to be with him. Like she's, that's a really special thing to be with this particular man. And she says, you know, we got to get up to the bedroom and, you know, I can't take it anymore kind of thing. And mm -hmm. he's like, well, darling, you know, you got to be real careful. You got to take it easy on me because tomorrow we got to wake up early and we got a lot of things we got to do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Cause they're going to, they got these plans together to get out of there. The thing is, is that it ends up being the most wild of all the sexual encounters in the movie. Yeah. It goes on for a long time. And she finds out she's pregnant after that. Right. Mm -hmm. And shortly after finding out she's pregnant before she tells him they have an accident, there's an accident. Right. I think that the idea of synchronicity, that that is a symbol of, of this, that things are going fine on the road. And all of a sudden, boom, you know, and it's, it's, that might be, but.
Oh, for sure. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah because yeah. It, it, it didn't have anything to do with the movie. It was just a very oddball. And those are some of the most entertaining scenes for me just because uh, they didn't make any sense. And they were taken out of just uh, completely out of context. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that. I, I, I love that a lot. So let's say a few words about the acting. I What's weird in um, is that Lynch, he has this way of commanding his actors to i wouldn't say act poorly but be uh, do things exaggeratingly so in not necessarily a comical way but an almost disturbing way kind of if you see lula whenever she cries she always has her her hands above her hair and stuff like some you know 50s monster movie with a woman screaming or something like that you know she buckles her knees and and then, of course, the mother with her freaking out, and everything is kind of exaggerated. Um, mm-hmm. And I, this is a common theme in uh, in Lynch's stuff. So it's not like he grabs actors that can't act. He somehow commands them to do something, and I don't know what it is. I can't quite put my finger on it. So you know, your average person who might not know about that or might not be able to appreciate Wild Heart, I could see saying, well, the acting was horrible because they didn't understand um, exactly that the characters are supposed to be like this, that this is how the movie is supposed to play out. You know, I, I don't want to dog a... I watched a film not long ago. It's an, it's an independent film, so I won't name it, uh, you know, because I, they, they did it. They made a film, okay? <laughs> and it was really low budget. And, but, but, you know, they, and the person who wrote it also directed it, also produced it, also started. And so there's, there's a lot of this going on, you know, but it, they, they, I got to give them credit for this. Okay. Got to give her credit for this. But there were people in that film that were super bad at acting. Yeah. And most of, most of the people in the film were B or C level people. I mean, they're pretty, pretty far down there. But then you had individuals in that, in that movie that were way, way, way bad. And they stood out. How did they get a role in this? You know, hey, please don't die. That would be really terrible. I hope you come back. That's just, it was so terrible, <laughs> the acting. And yeah. it really reflected poorly on the others. Whereas with this, I felt that everybody was kind of on the level with this. And it reminded me almost of the way that the acting has to be done in films it's not the same, obviously, because you can't, you couldn't get away with it with this. But movies like Waiting for Guffman, that's mm-hmm. not necessarily the greatest acting in the world. It fits it and it's necessary. And in that sense, it's, it's great acting. And I feel like for this, it was, it was the same way. And maybe that doesn't make any sense. I'm hoping that people who listen or who, who've, who've seen movies like Waiting for Guffman, that they, they can go, I know what he's saying. I know what he's saying with this. <laughs> so I thought that their acting was excellent because it yeah. fit exactly what the movie was. Right. Yeah. What, what, what do you think about the dialogue? There's some really um, some some stuff in particular, like the uh, the line that Sailor he said a couple times about his jacket. Yes, yeah, it's it's, it's a symbol of his individuality and his belief yeah. in personal freedom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And that, by the way, that was actually Nicolas Cage's jacket. Yeah. I, I did yeah. read that. Yeah. It's a snakeskin he, jacket. He ended up giving it to uh, Laura Dern. Yeah. I, I, I loved uh, 
some of that dialogue, there's some definitely some memorable lines. Probably the most memorable ones would be kind of like the uh, the quirky, you know, lines like the at the motel with the my dog barks some. <laughs> you might picture my dog or whatever that guy, yeah. which is actually the, the the actor who plays the Racerhead, and he's in uh, Twin Peaks as well. And he's talking about you know his dog barking, and you probably know in your head kind of you got an image in your brain of what it looks like. And it's such a random little conversation, you know, it, it seems random, but I, I feel that it's, it's kind of one of those things that also plays into the psychological dynamic of, of what appears to be Lynch to me, mm-hmm. you know, being a newcomer on this, but the idea of these symbols are what they are uh, in archetypal and that people can say, for example, draw an apple. And it almost always looks kind of the same. It's it's like a heart almost a little bit, but it's kind of rounded out at the bottom and it has a little reflection mark maybe on one of the little glare window looking thing on one of the sides of it. And it's got a stem and a leaf. There are no apples in real life that look like that. Mm-hmm. Right? It's totally fake. But if you say, man, I was eating an apple. And even though you, I haven't told you what kind of apple I was eating or what it looked like, you have an image of an apple in your mind. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the same thing in the movie with mother, hero, trickster. These ideas of what they are, that they transcend this specific character. So we have in our minds uh, what they are. Even the story itself, the, the overriding myth of the film, which would be The Wizard of Oz. Um, maybe even the religion of the film. Yeah. And and I think there's something to be said too quickly about the, uh, the editing of the film itself was and not just with the music, but like you were talking about earlier, the, the match strikes and there was even some, um, you know, like with the, there's that underlying theme with the wizard of Oz. And so there were like scenes with the uh, um, crystal ball or, um, you know, the witch and stuff like that. A lot of odd choices. But again, it's David Lynch, you know, mm. and if you're familiar with him, you, you expect it. I would imagine Lynch being fairly new at the time. I can see people maybe saying that those were odd choices, but I appreciated them because it made the, the film um, that much more original, you know doing those odd choices one of the odd choices being that to use uh you know metal music in in areas that you maybe normally wouldn't wouldn't use Mm -hmm. the uh what are what are some of the standout scenes for you that you enjoyed the most the scene where the the mother is losing her mind and that on the one hand she's she's kind of initiated a path with with old santos that He's going to he's going to kill somebody and that she's connected with this and she's connected with a lot of death, man. Like you'll find out in the movie. She's like she's a wicked person. And so so she's you're seeing, though, the internal conflict express itself with her putting uh, this red makeup on her wrist like she's like it's suicide. Mm -hmm. okay? and and then it gets bigger and bigger and there's more makeup and then there's makeup all over her face. And then next thing you know. It's on her arms and it's on her face and her her whole body is basically pinkish oh, red. It's red, and, right there, like uh, yeah. 
Yeah, like Oompa Loompa. Yeah. And so she just, it brings out almost the demonic, the the idea that she is the red devil. But I also like the scene where uh, Lula is talking with Sailor and they're in the hotel and they're talking about basically how um, she first lost her virginity. And she lied to him. Mm-hmm. In fact, and and maybe it was that she's lying to herself, too, that she's suppressing a terrible memory and saying, basically, you know, not only that, uh, you know, that, that she said how it happened, which was already bad enough. But then she said her mother knew nothing about it. But then there's a flashback moment, which I also liked, by right. the way. And I know some critics criticize that. Uh, I thought that it added to it because she's saying, well, no, my mom never knew anything about it. And come to find out, oh, yes, the mom definitely knew stuff about it. And. Um, not only did she know stuff about it, but she did something about it later that that mm-hmm. was also hidden and suppressed yeah. okay, that comes back through a flashback. That's a, a rather painful thing to for for Lula to to have to reflect on and think about. Yeah. So I felt that those were those were some of my favorite. And I will I will say this and this is maybe a little controversial, but I will say it is that on the one hand, I was taken off guard by the sexuality in the film. Mm-hmm. I am a devout Roman Catholic, <laughs> and, and so I have certain beliefs and values, uh, sexual ethics and stuff like that. Um, but I'm also an artist, and I, uh, I I understand how this played into the film. And I know that some people could say, well, this was gratuitous, mm-hmm. um, these sex scenes and stuff, that they were gratuitous. Um, but I feel that without them... It would not have, number one, it wouldn't have been such a stark contrast with the, from the midway point of the movie forward, where she finds out she's pregnant Mm -hmm. and where they don't do it again in the rest of the film. If it was that they did it it once. I think it has that, that part that you're talking about and you uh, were talking about that earlier. I think that that has less to do with her being pregnant and more to do with, um, the incident with Bobby Peru because things didn't seem to really turn dark until they got there. And then Bobby Peru came in there. I think it was like a, the perfect storm. I think that she was starting to be unsure of their future, where they were headed. Things were starting to get to turn dark and uh, these people that they were meeting. And then when Bobby Peru came in there and did his thing, she was maybe unsure. She probably had a lot of guilt about what happened because um, she uh, there was some submission there, you know, and like you were talking, yeah. it would be, yeah. I guess, considered psychological rape. Uh, but that probably really threw her for uh, really confused her. I, I would agree. However, um, they they didn't the absence of sex from the frequency of sex, because it was like five scenes basically. And they're not long except for the one where she gets pregnant from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's the, that's the, the, what you're assuming, right? Yeah. It could have been any of them, but the assumption in the sequence of events is that this really intimate one, that was a powerful thing and where it was loving and everything, that that was really what it was. But from there, what, what was interesting is that the color changes too. Mm-hmm. the color change from, uh, reds, uh, uh, pinks, blues, and reds to black, and that by the time they get to the place, they're and wearing. Not- and, 
and, and, yeah. and let me just point out, I know what you're talking about because we did talk about this before. You're you're kind of maybe more specifically talking about her, her the clothes that she wore. I think the movie started in pink. Yeah, and then red. Yeah. And then yeah, toward the well, end. Even him, black. he had a blue shirt. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was there was there was the sense of blues and pinks, boys and girls type thing, red for the passion and love and the fire, right? That goes with that. Mm-hmm. And then once once she was aware of this, mm-hmm. um, you start to see the colors in what they're wearing, it starts to change. And by the time you get to when when the scene with with Willem Dafoe, the the psychological rape scene, which they say is rape, at the, the Lynchian version of rape is rape at the level of language. Okay, if I'm remembering it correctly, but that the William Defoe scene, William Defoe comes in, he sees her, she's wearing black lingerie, mm-hmm. she, and she's wearing red red shoes, so it still has the fire there, right? And he comes in, and he's wearing all black. But if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, sailor is working on his car. So he's already assumed the, the fatherly role kind of falling back into this world of like, he's not wearing his jacket. He's outside. He's working on a car and wearing all black. So there's a lot of the, the, the colors have changed and she is multiple times looking at this horse. This there's a right next to her where she's laying, there's a nightstand and there's a horse and no, there's no rider on it. Mm-hmm. I think that that is symbolic of kind of hoping that he will be the man to mount the horse of their relationship and not, not just sexually, hmm. but, but ultimately in a bigger scheme that he will fulfill yeah. the man part of this because she's not going to do with this child and doesn't want to do with the child. What happened to the child that resulted the secret that mm-hmm. resulted from her being violated uh, in the in the the flashback, the memory and the controlling wicked witch mother that brought her to a place to abort the child. Hitchcock did the the clothes thing too. I don't know if you've ever seen Psycho. At the beginning of the movie, the the, the woman who steals the money, she's wearing a white uh, white underwear, a white bra, and then um, once she steals the money and basically goes, uh, you know, rogue with the money, she's wearing black and that was done mm-hmm. purposefully to show yeah. like uh good and evil yin and yang and so that that's the only reason why i would say that the the sex slowed down and stopped at the at the point where they realized that responsibility was there because what drove them was the individuality and the freedom yeah, and the freedom You're yeah. Right. You're right. yeah You're right. and so i think okay. that once that happened it was like what next where do we go with this is it the same which is also kind of the the idea that it went from just we just do it like jackrabbits to yeah. I'm going to put on sexy red high heels and black lingerie. Mm-hmm. That that is a signal that in the previous life wasn't necessary mm-hmm. because they were just constantly boning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it yeah. what, what it was. And so there was yeah. no need for that where now that is part of that. And it, it, I, th- I felt that Lynch did a brilliant job of showing almost the the arc of domestication um my uh my standout scenes were um i really liked the uh i like the scene where they're at the at the the metal show and um sailor stops the band just with the you know motion of his hand 
and that yeah. whole surreal moment of putting that dude, that confrontational moment. I love confrontational scenes like that where, you know, somebody is going to be get put in their place. And I, I really liked that. And, and just the fact that he, you know, you've got this, uh, they're not quite a death metal, but, uh, uh, this metal band up there uh, who all of a sudden knows how to play an Elvis song along with Nicholas at his, you know, at his request. Um, I like that scene a lot and uh, how he, you know, he flicked his cigarette and it, just in a it, real quick movements made the guy uh, basically put the cigarette out with his hand by throwing him down to the ground. But I also liked, um, I liked, and this is almost, I wouldn't say a similar scene, but that it's its the other dance scene where Sailor's in the back seat sleeping because he's wore out and uh, Lula is driving and she's just hearing all this uh, bad news on the radio, you know, people dying, yeah. all this weird stuff happening and, and she can't take it anymore. So she has a little meltdown and parks the car and she's like, you get me something on that radio right now. And he gets some, uh, some metal on there and they start doing, he does his karate moshing thing that he does whatever he does and she does her thing and uh i like that scene i also like the motel scene where bobby peru is introduced and then we get to meet uh the the some of the other weird characters but my favorite scene i think in the whole movie is the the scene where bobby peru comes in with where lula is alone because it's super, super intense it's really disturbing and William Defoe is so good. And you don't know exactly what's going to happen or where it's headed. And the whole time you're just like begging this girl not to, because you know that the, her and Sailor have a great relationship. Um, it may not be healthy on some levels, but they're happy. Mm-hmm. And anytime somebody sways um, away from that and you watch it happen, you just, your heart kind of breaks. And so to watch that and be like, you know, girl, just stand your ground or sailor come busting in and take care of this. So you weren't sure. And then Lynch has this way with, uh, and you'll see it in other movies. He uses <clears throat> uh, sound and uh, like a droning ambience in, in a lot of his stuff, uh, Twin Peaks and a lot of his movies that really um, is untraditional. And he used a, sound, a loud sound when Willem Dafoe, kind of just flipped and screamed at her and it was really startling and i i really like that uh quite a lot and then the second that she you know quote unquote submits then he's just puts on this goofy face and he said i'd love to but i gotta get going and uh <laughs> and then so you're taking you're, you're taken for this ride of just like you know extremely ex- intense disturbing moment and then all of a sudden, it's just like that. It's over, and you're supposed to maybe laugh even at at, at yeah. Bobby Peru. But uh, Sailor was a great character, but I, I really loved the Bobby Peru character, uh, too. He was just so yeah. sl- He was such a greaseball, so slimy. More than the rampant sex scenes, right? Mm-hmm. More than that, that scene was the line for me. It yeah. was where I was like, dude, this is where is this going? It was yeah. very uncomfortable to watch mm-hmm. because, you know, for clarification for people, I mean, Defoe comes in and finds her there alone. He, You've got Sailor outside working on his car, doing the, the in fact, the fatherly thing, the husbandly thing. 
and she's in there waiting for him, longing for the 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 man to mount the horse, right? Looking at that image. And Defoe comes in and she's very uncomfortable with him being in there. And he says he just got to use the bathroom real quick. Right. It's quite obvious he's there for a weird reason. And he there's no gentlemanly honor in him. He's just pure bad. Yeah. He's he walks in, he sees her dressed like that. He there's he should have said, Oh well, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Oh no. He's like, Oh no, it's okay. I'm just gonna use the bathroom. So he's he's getting himself in, he's forcing himself on the situation. And then he gets up to her and he begins talking to her really closely, very and she she backs away, she's very guarded. Her her she wraps her arm and her waist and her chest. Okay, and backs away from keeps her social distancing. <laughs> so, so she's keeping her distance from him and, and he gets closer and closer and closer and eventually grabs a hold of her now in a very forceful way. I mean, he, he's controlling the situation at this point physically and she shoves him away once. And, and to me, that was like, good. Like, Oh, I'm so glad about that. But then yeah. it was, is, is she pushing him away or is it the push and pull? Right. Is, is it that push and pull that's in, in a in a weird, uh, weird relationship, um, even with things like and this is we're talking about this. so We can say this. Right. The idea of of rape fantasy. And as I said, this is the line in the movie for me. This is like I'm not I'm not down <laughs> with Defoe. I'm not down with that character, man. What that character did is it's brutally evil. It's a Weinstein. It's a. a um harvey weinstein moment actually uh, and i think that that's actually maybe even more what it's playing yeah. into the idea of uh a make or break type character that everyone in the area thinks is the the real star for whatever reason even though physically grotesque looking the mouth thick yeah. gums and everything he looks gross yeah. um just slimy the thing is is that that kind of thing happens and it's a power move and i think that's why I think yeah. that's why Lynch used that was to talk about how it's done with power, even at the level of of language, and that that can be extrapolated to a number of different circumstances that aren't so explicitly sexual. Yeah, which is ironic considering how uh, nasty the guy was. <laughs> so um, I yeah. wanted to talk about the soundtrack, but we're we're yeah. running short of time. But your, so your overall thoughts of the of Wild at Heart. I mean, you know, and your rating, I guess. My my rating, um, as someone who loves yeah. film, as someone who is not afraid to to look into the abyss of human nature, uh, the way that people think, the way that people act, into into reality, because I think that this is really a reflection of the real in many ways, the absurdity and the darkness, um, as well as the innocence and the the kind of moral roadmap that's there that can preserve even people who may not be the best at reason. Um, but I would say that I would give that and I, I, I'd give it a 4.8, you know, like almost a five. It is not a movie for everybody, but yeah. for people who are into film and the art form of this and delving into that, that level of, of darkness to analyze the human condition. I think that this film is a must see. In fact, I can't think of anything that I don't like about it. Um, uh, I, I would have to, it just has, it scratches so many itches for me and uh, it's just, for me, it's just so original and I love, uh, I really like love stories anyway. Um, so I, I'm just going to give it a, a full five, five stars. Cause uh, yeah, I mean, I like it. I like the soundtrack uh, the editing, 
Uh, I just love the way that uh, Lynch has his characters act and the weird scenes that are put in there that <clears throat> don't distract from the real story, but just enough to kind of remind you that you're in his world and just give you almost like a, I, I don't know if I'd call it comic relief, but just knowing that through this whole ride at any given moment, you could have another really oddball character or oddball scene that is not going to make any sense at all. But in this world, it's just a uh, commonplace. And I, I, I love that. And that's why uh, that right there is my, was my influence for Skullface boy. So that, that kind of thing, you know, but I want to say, I guess another thing about it is like, even the happy ending part that, that people are like, well, look, all the all the bad happened. And and, you know, did, was it convincing that they came together in the end? Right. Um, and that he didn't leave because in the book he walks away. He doesn't he doesn't they don't get together. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought and they said, well, you know, the, the, the character arc and maybe it was lacking and it wasn't very convincing of this. And I felt like, but that's so human again. Right. I mean, it, it, it's it's. We can almost all imagine certain people that we've even known who maybe it's not the deepest relationship in the world. Maybe they're not the brightest bulbs on the tree. Right. OK. And and so that's just who they are. But they, they love life. They love each other. And that's just the way it is. And there are two peas in a pod. You just go, I can't actually imagine that person with anybody else. And I can't imagine anybody other than Lula for Sailor and anyone for Sailor Balula, back and forth, both of them, that they are, yeah. the idea that they would be with anybody else is totally absurd. And the last yeah. thing is just simply this, that I liked the guy, the Lynch guy over at oons.com. He said uh, that when people complained that it was about, it was nihilistic and stuff. He was saying that the road may lead through the wasteland, right? In which the moral order is almost entirely hidden by a fallen and degenerate world and visible only in these fleeting glimpses and grotesque guises. But even in this world, what is right by nature still has the power to bring the film to a satisfying conclusion. And I felt that that was true. And I felt that it was not just true, but that it was true even according to Lynch in the book that he, in the book, and there's a quote that I underlined, it was really good, and he said that he was asked the question, if you saw the world as wild at heart and weird on top at the beginning of the 90s, and you think it's continuing to get worse, what do you think is causing it? And he says, I'll tell you what it is. Each year we give permission for people to get away with more. We do it by being disorganized, being without leadership, not making decisions fast enough, and not holding true to things that were in place to begin with. Then it gets easier to give more away. I don't know when we started giving it away, but it reminds me of Dune. I started giving something away early on, only just a little bit, and then I'd give away a little bit more. Pretty soon, you've got a problem. And I felt that, I felt that that was that both of those statements, both the guy at Oons and the statement here, can kind of summarize my my full take on the film and what it said to me. Um, and what it what it says about America, not just in the 90s, but today. So, Jeremiah, have you did you walk away with any kind of like moral from this story? Um, anybody with teeth like Willem Dafoe, just steer clear. <laughs> you know, he's obviously yeah. got a lot of problems. You know, he, he's not brushing. He's not flossing. 
he looks like you know he's been using sandpaper as a toothbrush and you know it, macaroni and cheese the the powdered cheese as his toothpaste i mean it's just a terrible he, look he, he looks like instead of brushing his teeth He's just pulling his gums over the over his teeth a little at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, I just gotta imagine, dude, just slowly like pulling at it, man, like Play-Doh, just ooh, <laughs> over yeah. the teeth. Oh, it's so grody. Hey, what did you take away from this, man? Oh well, I, I that I really want a snakeskin jacket. You need a snakeskin jacket, Chad. Yeah. Yeah. You you are the kind of guy. I'm serious, man. You're the kind of guy that I think would look pretty cool in a snakeskin jacket. I, I would not. I can pull it off. You could totally pull it off, man. Yeah. Totally. You know, it, it's it's your your style, it's your frame, the way you walk. You got that really cool stride. You know, you got cool <laughs> hair. Swagger. You got the swagger. <laughs> and so, yeah, man, you know, I think you'd do really good on that. Well, maybe uh, maybe I can find one on eBay someday. I'm telling you, you can find a lot of stuff on eBay. Yeah, maybe even the uh, the remains of Willem Dafoe's teeth. Well, that's our, that's our thoughts on uh, David Lynch's <laughs> Wild at Heart. That's the end of yeah. episode one. So It's the end of episode one, man. And people have to like, subscribe, share, comment, and make sure to email us. We have an email, Chad, don't we? Yeah, that is uh, paleocheese at gmail.com. Yeah, we also super dupe easy Twitter and a uh, Instagram and cheese with a Z. Yes, yes, yeah, and cheese with a Z. So make sure to subscribe on all of those things, like, share, comment, let your friends know. And if you have movie suggestions, you know, we're always open to it and, and different sources of videos to watch for review. We'd love to hear from you. So make sure again, go ahead and email us at paleo cheese. That's P A L E O. C-H-E-E-Z-E at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you.